Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. Earlier in our series on cities, we've learned about city structure and about the history of certain urban environments. Today, those two ideas will converge as Associate Professor Nancy Reynolds helps us understand the concept of the dual city. As we'll learn, some colonial cities, particularly in the Middle East, are viewed as dual cities. However, as Reynolds' research shows, certain cities like Cairo do not fit so easily into the model. Reynolds teaches in the Departments of History, Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, and Jewish, Islamic, and Near Eastern Languages and Cultures here at Washington University in St. Louis. I teach a class on colonial cities. It's a comparative course on mostly cities in the Middle East, but also cities in South Asia and also some European and American cities. Despite looking at such a wide range of cities, there's a common thread here, the idea of modernity. So the real question is linked to the question of modernity and how urban space has always been seen as the kind of incubator for what is modern. Since the idea of modernity itself is contested, in Reynolds' class, she and her students talk a lot about the definition of what is modern and whether there are certain dynamics that make colonial cities and their experiences of modernity unique. Here's where the idea of the dual city comes in. In some colonial cities, there are two distinct sections the old part of the city, and the newer part, which reflects the culture of the colonizers. One of the main ways that people have understood many colonial cities, especially North African cities, has been as a dual city. A city like Algiers is often a, a prime example in which there's an old, what's often called the Kasbah, right? The old part of the city that's been in place for many, many hundreds of years, usually a place with narrow, winding streets and not separated residential neighborhoods, so an integration of functions. Rich people live near poor people, and homes, stores, government buildings, commercial properties, they all existed near one another. These parts of the cities were also very dense and physically compact. And so when European powers came in, it was difficult for them to enter into that urban environment, and they didn't feel like it was very modern. So they often built new parts of the city in European styles next to the older part of the city. In a place like Algiers, it's very stark. The kind of European city, the French city, is modeled on Paris in that period. So broad plazas and broad boulevards and big public buildings and buildings that looked out to the street. This Parisian style was quite different than the Arab style of architecture. Older buildings in Algiers often looked inward to courtyards rather than outward to the streets. The interior of the space was more important than the exterior of the space. Those older neighborhoods had really important rooftop cultures, for example, and a lot of the uh, movement in cities was along the rooftops, not just through the sidewalks. And these interior spaces, courtyards and rooftops, were culturally important, in part because Arab women could move more freely within courtyards or on rooftops than they could on the streets. Like the architecture, this type of culture was quite different than that of the French colonizers. So the French were always trying to kind of pierce those older cores because they wanted to keep an eye on people, and especially in a place like Algeria, where colonial tensions were really ratcheting up by the time of the Second World War. Um, there was a lot of tension in kind of policing the sort of boundaries between those spaces. 
The urban space itself and the political situation there became understood as a divided city in part due to a book written in 1961 by psychologist and theorist Frantz Fanon. He is kind of most famous for talking about the divided city of colonialism. So he talks about the, the native city being poor, being dark, being hungry, being made out of really fragile materials, and the city of the colonizer as being of stone and steel, he says, of plentiful in terms of bread, where people had shoes, for example, to walk in the streets, but they didn't even need them because the streets were paved nicely with stone. So this idea of a dual city became a way to describe other colonial cities, including Cairo. So many travelers to Cairo, I think, from the late 19th century onwards, began to talk about Cairo as a, a dual city, that they saw these different built environments of Cairo, an old core. Cairo is a city that has been continuously inhabited you know, for well over a thousand years, often in the same buildings. And as in Algiers, this old core was juxtaposed against a new Cairo. Ismail, who ruled Egypt in the mid to late, sort of late 1870s, but was ruling when the Suez Canal was open, decided to build what he called a new city adjacent to the old city in Cairo. This ruler had gone to Paris and had fallen in love with the city. He wanted to recreate some of Paris along the Nile, and this is the area that became the new downtown Cairo. The existence of two very architecturally distinct areas led visitors to describe Cairo as a dual city, like Algiers. But as Reynolds has discovered in her research, life in Cairo was very complex. And these visitors who were calling Cairo a dual city were limited in their ability to understand the complexity. And usually it was people who couldn't read signs, for example, in Arabic, but could read buildings. And so read a lot into the architecture because they didn't have personal relationships that showed them how people actually used the city. Despite the limitations of the model, scholars, as well as visitors, began to describe Cairo as a dual city. So the dual city as a model began to be picked up by scholars and replicated and used to describe the city in it's kind of increasingly strident terms. So there was a way in which scholars would begin to say, not only is the city divided architecturally, but we can see that there are two different eras, that the old city lives in the past and the new city lives in the future. And the old city is Egypt and the new city is Europe. And so all these bifurcations became associated with the dual city model. And the implication for the dual city model was that what should happen is the sort of modern European city was the goal, that everything that was backwards, that was hampering Egypt from becoming an independent player in international politics, having its own independence, was connected to these old, stagnant, built environments that were kind of dragging the city down. So there was a sense that in order to become modern, to become powerful, it all had to eventually look like Europe. Because of this association of the new city with Europe and the old city with Egypt, scholars also viewed the city as being separated by ethnicity and nationality as much as by architecture. And this assumption influenced understandings of Cairo politics. It was assumed that any political unity in Cairo would be based on ethnicity, rather than other things like class. In the Algerian case, this was very true. There was a, a very strong multi-class movement, a front, a national front that led the revolution. And Algeria spent a lot of the years after independence from the 1960s onward trying to deal with a lot of the tensions of class that had been submerged in the nationalist movement. However, according to Reynolds, in Cairo, the situation was much more complicated. Egypt also had a national revolution. It had one in 1919 and it had another one in 1952. But the politics about 
class were always very important. And so these are some of the things that make you think that maybe the dual city is not the right model for understanding Egypt. This complexity was especially evident in commercial spaces. Reynolds has found that in places of commerce, like markets or department stores, people of different classes, backgrounds, languages, and religions all interacted. This was somewhat surprising for historians. My work on following the experiences of Egyptians in urban space, in a space like Cairo in particular, really revealed that there was a lot more mobility than anyone had expected. People were traveling all over Cairo all the time, and that that mobility was really working to defy uh, the dual city and led to a politics of uh, really class-based politics of, of national protest. Older models, I guess, of understanding communal relations in the Middle East tend to talk about mosaics. It's as if there are many different communities that live side by side but don't necessarily interact with each other, so Christians and Jews and Armenians as opposed to Syrian Catholics. Our expectation is that they are really divided by class, but they don't really connect with each other very much. So it turns out when you look at this period and you look at commerce and understand the city more complexly, you can see that, in fact, there's a lot more within the class connection between the different communities and more conflict than you would expect in the communal societies themselves. In her most recent book, titled A City Consumed, Urban Commerce, the Cairo Fire, and the Politics of Decolonization in Egypt. One of Reynolds' arguments is that the dual city model has in fact hindered scholars from seeing the complexity of colonial cities, the lives of the people who live there, and how political constituencies in those cities actually form. Obviously, in today's Middle East, this type of argument is extremely relevant. That's something that should help us rethink how we predict what kinds of conflict might come out of urban space. Um, and I think historians are really well positioned to look at cities in this way because not only do we can we attend to the kind of the built environment and the architecture of cities, but we also are able to reconstruct a lot of these messy empirical stories of people's lives and how those lives have changed over time. And so a lot of that history has been forgotten. Um, you know, the 1960s really closed down thinking about the sort of cosmopolitan Middle East, and I think it's been important for historians to go back and understand how um, many of the formative movements that transformed the Middle East into what it is today, really those people came out of these very fluid ethnic, political, and ultimately urban environments. Many thanks to Nancy Reynolds for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to her faculty page, as well as more ideas to explore, on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu.